Well, I want to begin this morning um, with a quotation, um, and just to ask if anyone can tell me where it's from. <clears throat> the line goes something like this. I will not say, do not weep, for not all tears are an evil. Does anyone know where that comes from? I will not say, do not weep, for not all tears are an evil. Anyone think they know and feel brave? Okay, well, it's from a, a, a movie, a very big movie um, last year, and also a very popular book of the last century, involving people with hairy toes <laughs> and jewellery. <laughs> yes, it's from, it's from the Lord of the Rings. It's from the end of the Lord of the Rings, the end of Return of the King. Um, and Gandalf speaks those words as he says goodbye to his friends. Um, it's a very moving bit at the end. Again, it's after three and a half hours of the third movie. If you've watched all of them back to back, you'll have spent a good day watching it all. Um, but it is a great line. It's a very moving line. I will not say do not weep, for not all tears are an evil. So Gandalf's accepting that leaving his friends and his friends say goodbye to him will bring them tears, will bring them sadness. But that actually is a sign of their affection for each other. I think it's a line that says a lot about the place of tears and the place of sadness in our lives as well. I mean, there are times in our lives when we all experience tears, when we all cry, when we all experience sadness. And those times aren't always as negative as we might expect. And so is even the music we listen to, the TV and movies we watch, the books we read, sometimes we actually like to read a sad story, to watch a sad movie, and then to cry about it afterwards. We think it's sort of cathartic and makes us feel better at the end. And so as we can become too negative and enjoy those feelings of, of sadness a bit too much sometimes. As a student, and I think I took myself a bit too seriously, and I was known to be found walking around an old graveyard in St Andrews, um, where I went to university with my personal stereo on, feeling very deep and introspective. And so I certainly took myself too seriously then. Other times we actually try to avoid tears altogether. And we perhaps avoid getting to know anyone very well. Because we know that relationships can involve hurts and tears. So we live in a fallen world. Tears will come. And what that quote from Lord of the Rings says is not all tears are actually evil. And as we turn to the book of Amos again this morning, I hope you've sort of seen over the last few weeks, Amos is a very sad prophecy. It's even a depressing prophecy in some ways. I mean, if you've been here the last few weeks, just think for a minute, I mean, how have you found this book so far? Again, it's not a very well-known book. But again, quite apart from some difficult place names and difficult things in it, generally the message is pretty clear and it's very bleak. Amos is speaking to Israel, to God's chosen people, and they have rejected God's law and ignored God himself. They've oppressed the poor and the helpless, and they've continually failed to return to God, even when he sent disasters on them. And there's some verses from last week in chapter 4. Just read verse, chapter 4, verse 6. God speaking, I gave you empty stomachs in every city, and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me. Verse 8, people staggered from time to time for water, but did not get enough to drink, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. 
See, God's people have lost all understanding of God's holiness and God's righteousness. So God tells them that he will judge them. He will send a foreign nation, Assyria, to destroy their land and carry them off into exile. Why do we need to hear such a depressing message on a beautiful day like today? Doesn't life have enough disappointments and sadness in it without adding to them by reading the book of Amos? Well, I think as we've seen in the last few weeks, if you're a Christian here this morning, you're in a similar position to Israel, to the nation that Amos was speaking to. If you're a Christian here, you're saved by God. He has brought you into his family through Jesus. And you're one of God's people. But you're also called to remember the Lord every day of your life. To love him with heart, mind, soul and strength. And to worship him by offering him our whole bodies as living sacrifices. As Paul says in Romans 12. See, if Christians begin to forget about God and what he has done for us in sending Jesus, if Christians begin to reject God's law and reject the poor and the helpless, if Christians become indistinguishable from the world around them, then Amos tells us God will judge us. If we reject God, then God will reject us. We can't just presume this could never happen to us while we allow ourselves to drift aimlessly in our relationship with Jesus. So Amos gives us a timely warning in this book. The warnings to Israel become warnings to us to ensure that we don't drift away or stray from the grace that we find in Jesus. So part of the depressing nature of Amos' message is that it is a warning. It's a warning to God's people. But if Amos was just a warning, it would be all too easy to ignore it. If you look at cigarette packets these days, the health warnings are getting bigger and bigger and more and more direct. Um, I think I remember when it was just quite a small little bit, but now when I see my brother's packets, he's kind of got smoking kills really starkly on the packet. But for a lot of smokers, those warnings just blend in with the design of the packet of cigarettes. See, the fact is they can ignore those warnings. And the sad fact is, in Israel's history, Israel ignored Amos' warnings. They didn't return to the Lord, and God's judgment did come. You see, Amos' prophecy, and particularly chapter 5 of Amos, is a lot more than just a warning in black and white. In chapters 5 and 6 of his prophecy, Amos provides us with an amazing portrait of our God, of the judge of all the earth, and of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of the book of Judgment, Amos gives us an amazing glimpse into God's heart. And those glimpses should lead us to worship God more and more in our lives and to humble ourselves before his grace. So we're going to focus mainly on chapter 5 this morning to see this portrait of our God. So starting with um, verses 1 to 3, we see Amos describing the tragedy of judgment. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 3 again. 
Hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. The city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. You see what Amos is doing here? He is taking up a lament about Israel. Verse 1. Hear this lament I take up. This is a song of sadness for Amos. See, the sin of Israel... And the judgment that's coming on Israel is heartbreaking. Both for Amos to deliver that message and amazingly for God to carry out that judgment. See, verse 3 tells us the devastation on Israel will be total. The Assyrian army is going to come in and crush its armies and enslave its peoples. The tribes of Israel are never going to return complete to their own land again. These are the lost tribes of Israel that are so famously mentioned at times. See, Amos describes the Assyrians as decimating this land. The destruction will be terrible. And when you hear about God's judgment in those terms, when you hear descriptions of God as the judge of all the worlds, how do you feel? We've had to think about this already in this series. Many of us feel deeply uncomfortable. And there's been a lot of ink spilt and effort made over the centuries to explain passages like this away. God won't really judge. I mean, he is a God of love. He won't judge. Or this is just Amos writing on a bad day. And God doesn't mean for Amos to deliver this prophecy. Or maybe, well, God did judge Israel, but he's not going to judge us today. He wouldn't do that. Or when the Bible talks about God judging people, maybe it means that God might let bad things happen sometimes, but he's not really behind them. He doesn't really cause that judgment to occur. But you see, those readings just don't work when we look at how God describes his judgment here. See, the terms in which God's judgment is described are deeply personal. It clearly is God who is doing the judging here. Can I turn over for a moment to chapter 6, verse 11? Amos says it again, For the Lord has given the command, and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Verse 14, For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, O house of Israel, that will oppress you all the way. So how are we to reconcile God's judgment here with God's love for his world and particularly for his people throughout the whole of scripture? I think we can do that by looking at 5 verse 1 again. Hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. He's describing God's judgment requires God to place a lament in Amos' mouth. God is deeply saddened by the judgment he is about to bring on Israel because he loves them so deeply. See, perhaps some of us do find Amos a depressing book. It's, It's definitely a difficult book for us to take on board. 
But also then 5 verse 1 reminds us that actually it's meant to be depressing. Sin is depressing. And sin among God's people is desperately sad. When we hear about a church leader falling into sin and having to leave his post, are we saddened by that? We hear about church leaders abandoning the truth of God's word, changing it so that they'll be more popular, just living to get glory from people, not glory from God. Are we saddened by that? Does it grieve us? When we see fellow Christians falling out with each other, refusing to be reconciled, when we see past hurts and resentments poisoning relationships in a local church, are we saddened by that? Because God is. And what about sin in our own lives? Maybe a recurring sin we just can't seem to shake off. Or maybe just a coldness. A lack of love for God. A lack of love for one another. Does that sadden us? It should. Because it grieves God. And there's something even more amazing, I think, about God's lament in chapter 5. And there's a phenomenon today I was reading about, and it's called compassion fatigue, I think is the word, the phrase. And basically it becomes about when we see so many problems around us, day after day, and perhaps problems in Iraq, the ongoing situation there, perhaps just the ongoing strife in so many parts of Africa, or just the rise of crime in our own streets, just you can name anything. We see it day after day on the news, in documentaries. And after a while, we respond by just ceasing to care anymore. We just, it's on the news again. We're just getting used to it. When I grew up, um, the local news um, often would have deaths being reported. It was during the Troubles back in Northern Ireland. And local news, basically every day, there would nearly always be someone who had either been killed or hurt in a terrorist attack. After a while, I didn't feel any compassion. I just heard it too often. It's an easy attitude to fall into. In youth work, even this Friday, at our Friday night group, we had to exclude some pretty riotous kids. And it was just very, very hard work. And by the end of the night, I have to admit, I had stopped caring. I just shut the door, didn't want to see them again. See, Amos, in chapter 5, is telling us some amazing news. God does not suffer from compassion fatigue. Even after all Israel's sins, he still cares for them. He still mourns over them. He still grieves for their sin. See, God's judgment is never glib or cold or unfeeling. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse 23, God tells Ezekiel, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? So we see, first of all, this tragedy of judgment. God does not want to judge, and he still loves the people he is about to judge. This, I think, is an amazing insight into God's love. 
And it leads us on to verses 4 to 17 of chapter 5. We're going to spend the majority of our time on these this morning. See, more clearly than before in Amos' prophecy, we see that there is actually an alternative to God's judgment in these verses. Just read verses 4 to 6. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour and Bethel will have no one to quench it. You see, these verses here, they're in actually direct contrast to some verses we looked at last week in chapter 4. Just read 4 verses 4 to 5, where God says, Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the Sovereign Lord. See, in chapter 4, last week, we saw the terrifying image of God giving his people over to their sin. Of God allowing sinful people just to go on rejecting him in their lives, in the knowledge that God will judge them for that. See, that's a terrifying aspect of God's judgment. He just lets us have our way. But here in chapter 5, we see God revealing an equally awe-inspiring aspect of his character. In verses 4 to 6, we see that even at this stage, in Amos' prophecy, God has not given up on Israel. See, this is an urgent call from God for Israel to repent, to come back to him. See, the place names that um, Amos refers to here, Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, these had all started out as places where the Lord was worshipped. Abraham had called on the name of the Lord at two of them. But over time, they became places where worship of the true Lord was replaced by idol worship in all but name. See, ever since the establishment of the temple in Jerusalem under Solomon, all of Israel was called to worship the Lord there to bring their sacrifice and offerings to Jerusalem. But when the kingdom split between Judah in the south and Israel in the north, the kings of Israel in the north, the people who Amos is speaking to, sought to prevent their subjects from travelling to Jerusalem in the south by setting up high places in Bethel and Gilgal, among other places. And see again, the Lord, Yahweh, he was said to be the object of worship at these places. But in reality, his prophets always condemned them and the practices that went on at those high places. See, God is calling Israel here to stop relying on these high places for their security. Instead, he calls on them to seek him. If they seek the Lord, they will live, he says. And as we've already seen this morning, it's the Lord's desire for his people to live. See, these are passionate words from the Lord. And it's an urgent warning against their false sense of security. Because you can almost imagine Israelites listening to Amos' prophecy and thinking to himself, you know, good for Amos. Yes, God surely will judge all those who refuse to worship him. <clears throat> but I'm alright. I'm okay. I go to Bethel regularly. I offer up my sacrifices. I pray there. 
Amos says to that person, No, you're not all right. Stop deceiving yourself. You can come to God in any way you choose. You see, the Lord had provided a way for people to come to him. He provided that through the temple in Jerusalem. And yet the people of Israel refused to humble themselves enough to use that way. They wanted to call the shots. They wanted to be the ones to decide how they would approach God. And there are clear parallels to Israel's self-deceit in our world today and in the church today. It's all too easy, as Tracy's already said, for someone to look the part, to appear very religious, very spiritual, when in fact they want to stay as far away from the Lord as possible. I had a tutor at university, um, and he was um, known to be the only Christian in the English department. And he was a regular attender at Evensong, <clears throat> played the organ at his local church, and he was, you know, really had a great respect for Christianity. And we became good friends. And we would often talk about things. I went to a local evangelical church, which he thought was horribly low. He liked high church a lot better. And talking about church one day, he told me that he felt that he needed the sort of paraphernalia of the high church, with its festivals and its holy days with his even songs and its liturgies. He needed all of that to do what he said. He needed them to hide his black heart from God. He needed to hide his black heart from God. He felt that the more direct access to God through Jesus that I talked about would only lead to that black heart being exposed. And he didn't want that. He was an amazingly honest man, actually. He wasn't seeking after the Lord. He was content with Bethel and Gilgal, with the trappings around religion. And in fact, he was scared that seeking the Lord would only lead to the exposure of his sinfulness. And sadly, seeking Bethel and Gilgal rather than seeking the Lord isn't just the preserve of high church people like my old tutor. Evangelical Christians can just as easily focus our attention and even our worship on the outward trappings of Christianity rather than on the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's through our ideas of a worship service. We want to use the best music possible to approach God, thinking that great music will do the trick. We forget that God has already provided the way for us to approach him, not through particular types of music, but through Jesus and his death for us. And the result of that attitude sometimes is that we begin to worship music rather than the Lord. In other churches, Christians can worship the teaching. The concern here is how good is the sermon going to be? We rely on the quality of the sermon for our approach to God rather than relying on Christ. And then easily we start to worship the sermon, or worse still, the preacher, rather than the Lord. See, in both those cases, we are no better than the Israel of Amos' day. See, God has provided a way for us to approach him. For Israel, it was the temple. For us, it's Jesus. And for us to decide to create a new way to approach God, to think that our way is the better way, is to be guilty of terrible arrogance, the same pride that Israel 
was guilty of. See, no Christian tradition is exempt from the dangers of seeking Bethel and Gilgal rather than seeking the Lord. And one of the biggest warning signs for each of us today is how often do you spend time alone with God? See, if we never meet with God on our own, if we never seek to pray to him and to hear him speak to us through his word, then we're in the same danger as Israel was. See, if we only ever pray and read the Bible in public, that's perhaps saying that we're looking for sort of a safety in numbers approach. We're actually fearful of seeking the Lord directly through Jesus. See, Amos' call to us, if that's our attitude, is very clear this morning. Verse 6, Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. See, check your heart and see if you're really desiring to worship God and know him. And if you're not, then ask God to change your heart, to transform it by his spirit so that you do desire to know him yourself, to seek after him, not just the trappings around him. See, the Lord calls on his people to seek him here. Are we seeking the Lord? But then there's a good question to ask, which is what does a community look like that is truly seeking the Lord? Again, it's not just as individuals that we seek the Lord, it is as a church community. And Israel generally in Amos demonstrates that they don't seek the Lord. And they do that through the lack of justice and fairness in their society. I'll just read a bit from verse 10 onwards of chapter 5. You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. I know how many are your offences and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous, take bribe, you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. And the list goes on. See, much of Amos' message is a picture of a people that don't seek the Lord. But then in verses 14 to 15, we get perhaps the clearest picture so far of an alternative society to the one in which they live. Of what a community seeking after the Lord will look like. Just read from verse 14. Seek God, seek good, sorry, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord, or God Almighty, will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. See, there's a deliberate echo of verses 4 and 6 here. There Amos urges Israel to seek the Lord, and here he says that seeking the Lord must involve seeking after good and seeking after justice in this world. See, Amos lets no one off the hook in Israel. Verse 13 describes a prudent man in Israel, a wise man, whose seeming wisdom leads him to keep quiet about these injustices. Perhaps his wisdom says, well, what can one man do against all this justice? Or just keep your head down, and it won't do me any good if I criticise these things publicly. But if you contrast Amos with that prudent man, Amos does not keep quiet in such a time. He shouts out the Lord's demands for justice. And so should God's people. 
See verse 15. Israel is to hate the evils described in verses 10 to 12. This is perhaps Amos' particular contribution to the Bible. He tells about the need for God's people to hate evil and to pursue justice and righteousness in our societies. See, it may seem strange to some of us that God calls his people to hate as well as to love. That can be difficult for us. But if we really love good, then surely we will hate evil. Once you've tasted the good that comes from knowing Christ, once you've tasted the new life that he calls you to, then anything else is just a lie, a dangerous lie, a destructive and hollow lie. And we're called to hate that. We need to see that it's often the weak and the helpless who suffer when a nation turns its back on God and on seeking after good. See, God's people must be different. We must seek after good and hate evil. Now in Amos' day, the people of God was a nation. It was Israel. And so the power to reform that nation lay with Israel. Today, the people of God is the church. And so we cannot claim to have the power to reform our whole nation. But in a modern democracy like Britain, a lot of the power to reform a nation lies with the voters. And that includes Christian voters. We cannot just stand by and watch things go from bad to worse in our world. We need to pray. We need to vote. And we need to live in such a way that we do seek good and not evil. And this is something that I've only recently begun to grasp myself, I think. And I'm still not completely thought through exactly how a concern for good in society is linked with the priority we have as Christians to make disciples for Jesus Christ, to prepare them for Christ's return. Again, as Christians, we have to accept that only God can truly transform this world. We mustn't fool ourselves that we can do more than create small changes in our society. This is a fallen world, and God is going to replace it with a new heaven and a new earth. But what the book of Amos tells me is that seeking after justice for the poor is a sign of someone seeking after God. If I'm doing one, then I must do the other. I must pray for justice. It will be available to those who cannot get it for themselves. And see, this is one of the really exciting things about God's word. It changes us. It changes our attitudes. It changes our priorities. I mean, centuries ago, um, the reformers had a phrase they used about themselves. I think it was um, semper reformanda, which means always under reform. And they meant that reading God's word and asking him to speak to us will certainly change us and reform us. See, we need constantly to be reformed by God's word, so that as we grow in our knowledge of God, we're going to grow more concerned with the things that God is concerned about. The spread of the gospel in this world, righteousness and godliness in my life, God's glory in my life, and justice for the poor and the helpless. See, our priorities are not always God's priorities. And it's a very dangerous attitude when we think that what we care about is all that God cares about. 
We need to let God's word speak to us. We need to let Amos speak to us and change us. Because these are God's concerns. So coming to an end then, the rest of Amos 5 and 6 just adds to the portrait Amos has already painted of a proud and complacent people who presume that God is on their side. Um, And I'm just going to skip over most of that really. But I just want us to read the verses that Tracy read for us um, from 21 to 24 of chapter 5. Because again, they talk about what we've already mentioned, which is the danger of religion. Chapter 5, verse 21. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. See, for justice and righteousness to flow among God's people, God's people first need to be made right with the just and righteous God. And for us today, that means we need to trust in Christ and to ask for his righteousness and his goodness to be given to us by faith. This isn't a call for us to just be better people. It's a call for us to cry out to God for his justice and his righteousness and to model that in our individual lives, in our community as a church and where possible in the wider society in which we live. So as we come to the end of this chapter, what is the portrait of God that Amos paints in chapter 5? There's a lot more that could be said about these chapters, but Amos's picture of God emerges clearly from these words. The God he portrays for us is a God who longs for sinful people to come to him. He does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. But at the same time, he is too holy and too just to simply ignore the evil visited on the helpless. So he will punish the wicked. He is a God who cannot be ignored forever by the world and even by his own people. He is a God who will be seen as God by everyone one day. And in the meantime, he is graciously calling people to himself even as he is aware of our sinfulness and our wretchedness. See, as we said at the beginning of our time here, Amos presents us with a depressing picture of God's people and the pride and the complacency that all of us can easily fall into. But he also presents us with an awesome picture of our God. Of our God who will judge the wicked, but he also longs to forgive us for every one of us is wicked without Jesus. And we know today, after the cross, that we seek the Lord by trusting in Christ. And that when we do that, Christ takes the punishment we deserve on himself. So we can be freed from a life of selfishness and sin to know our God. You see, Amos is God is a God of grace. He's a God of true biblical grace that teaches our hearts to fear God's judgment and then goes on to relieve that fear 
by providing a way out of his judgment at the cross.